Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour, everyone. Today's episode is going to be amazing. I would suggest that you consider if you want to have your children listen to this, maybe listen to it first. I think especially young women should listen to this, but you listen first. And not only should young women listen to it, but I think men should listen to this. There's so much juicy, good information in this episode. And primarily, it is about incontinence and how a hypertonic pelvic floor, which is one that's too tight, or a hypotonic pelvic floor, one's too floppy and loose, both of those can cause problems in terms of chronic pain, in terms of incontinence, in terms of painful sex. There are many different things that can occur. And as Leslie and I talk about, it could even be that when you look at your pelvic floor as a whole, that one side is tight and the other one is loose. So even within the same person, you could have two things going on. So I think this conversation is really fun. It is something that traditionally has been a little bit taboo to talk about. And Leslie even talks about her students that come up after class and say, is there any other way to work with this? Because I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) And I think we're bringing it out of the shadows and saying women's pelvic health and, and men too. But in this episode, we talk a lot about women it's important. It's something like any other part of the body that needs to be cared for, loved, cherished, nourished, and explored. So get ready for this lovely episode. She answered a lot of questions that I've had for a long time that I've wanted to ask someone just like Leslie. And I'll say she has this amazing book called Pelvic Liberation, which I'll talk about during the episode but it was really life-changing. I got this book back in like 2018 when it came out. And I was like, who is this woman? I like her and I wanna know more about her because she just had no shame around women's genitals and around the different functions of the body and exploration of that. And I just thought it was so brave and courageous because back then nobody was talking about this stuff. And we've had a couple of other wonderful guests like Shelly Prosco and Sherry Ryba talk about similar issues, but Leslie has her own spin on it. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. So welcome to this episode and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast, and we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Hello, today I welcome you and introduce you to Leslie Howard out of Oakland, California. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. 
Well, this is a topic that a lot of people do not want to talk about. It's almost taboo, but once you get into the women's circles and it gets broken open, then everybody wants to talk about it. So today- Very true. (laughs) We're talking about incontinence specifically for women, or maybe it's for men too. I'm not sure. We'll we'll do that. And chronic pelvic pain. So why don't you just start off and tell us how you got interested in this and why you love this topic? Yeah, well, okay, I'm a long, long, long time yoga practitioner, 30 years. I'm a long time yoga teacher, 20 years. And about 15 years ago, I started having symptoms like riding in the car too long. I would get extremely uncomfortable, like burning pain between my sitting bones Sex with my husband was becoming very painful, so much so that I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was like, what is going on? So I went to a physical therapist and there's a type of physical therapist that specializes in pelvic work. And she diagnosed me with what's called hypertonic pelvic floor, which meant my pelvic floor was really, really, really tight. And I was like, what? I'm a yoga teacher. How could this possibly be true? How could I not know that? And, you know, I'm doing yoga every day. Like, how did this happen? Anyway, I took a deep, deep dive into the whole subject. And then I mentioned a few things to my students and they're like, wait, I think I have that too. Wait, you need to teach about this. And I'm like, ah, okay. (laughs) So I started teaching them and they were like, this is so good. It's helped me so much. You need to like make this a bigger deal. And yeah, and then I reached out to Yoga Journal and 80% of your students are women and a lot of women have these issues. And I think we should do a workshop. And I was kind of pitching them on a two hour and they were like, you're right. We should do it all day. And I was like, what? Amazing. (laughs) And then all of a sudden I had to come up with more material and it's just kind of snowballed. It's just gotten bigger and bigger. UCSF has contacted me to do studies with them around these things. And it's just kind of taken over my life in a good way in that I was able to heal myself, that I can give hope to folks that are struggling with these issues. And, you know, my methodology is now scientifically proven to work, which is just so exciting. Okay, we're going to get to all of that. (laughs) But I first want to back up because I think the real question, especially a lot of yoga teachers and yoga therapists have the same thing. They're doing all of this breath work. They're doing all of this stretching. And yet they have a hypertonic pelvic floor. Can you just explain to us, maybe even from an anatomy and physiology perspective, how is that possible? Well, I'll just say that I study mainly in the Iyengar method. And when I was studying deeply, and I still do study Iyengar, but they weren't talking about the breath as much. They were talking about in pranayama, but not while we were doing asana. And when I took this kind of deep dive into the whole subject, I really found that my breath was not great. It wasn't deep. I also was very prone to what's called reverse breathing. And so let me just take a little sidebar to the anatomy. Go for it. it. So when we inhale, our lungs fill and our respiratory diaphragm, it widens and it moves down. So it's pushing our organs a little bit down. So ideally in good breathing, correct breathing, your pelvic floor also widens and moves down. They're in sync. But if you are a reverse breather, that means when you inhale, you're pulling your belly and your pelvic floor in and up. 
while your respiratory diaphragm is moving down. And so now they're out of sync. And it is very common. It's really common for people who have had trauma in their life and like seriously, who hasn't? But it's a traumatic response. Like think about if something scares you, you do what I call the inhale scream. You go, (gasps) right? So you're inhaling, but you're pulling everything up because you're ready to run or fight. So that pattern can stick around. I think sometimes that pattern can be just a misperception. A lot of people that come to me, I say, do you know why you're breathing that like that? And they'll say, well, I thought I was supposed to breathe like that. And I say, why do you think that? And they said, well, I, you know, I took this Pilates class. They told me to pull it in and up. And I love Pilates. I think they're misunderstanding what they're being asked for. So there's lots of reasons for it, but then the pelvic floor is lifting and shortening when it should be descending and widening. There are so many juicy gems in there. First of all, this thing that's happened in Iyengar yoga that I think is so beautiful that it was mainly about the postures for so many years and that when you perfected XYZ posture, then we'll get into pranayama. But first this shift in Iyengar yoga that they're really starting to talk about the breath in the postures. Is that accurate? Yeah. It varies from teacher to teacher how much it's talked about, but I studied with some of the top people in the world, really. And like Ramanan Patel is my main teacher. And he never once said to me, Leslie, you're reverse breathing. I don't know if he didn't notice it. I'm kind of like, how come no one has ever said anything to me about this? And now when people come to me, I would love a study on this. 100% of the people that come to me for pelvic pain are reverse breathers. You know, it's not the only reason your pelvic floor can be tight, but it's a huge contributor. Right. So I'm from this Krishnamacharya tradition that we breathe where you take it in through the nose, past your chest, your diaphragm lowers, your belly may pop out a little bit and your pelvic floor softens and spreads. And then on the exhalation, we go the other way where you're going from the pelvic floor, relaxing, and then to the belly and then to the rib cage up through the chest and the nose. Is that similar to what you do? The second part of what you said is exactly what I do. But the first part, I ask people to visualize like when they're filling a glass with water, the first place the water touches is the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking them to breathe into the pelvic floor, filling their body from the bottom to the top and also emptying from the Mm -hmm. bottom to the top. The imagery I like to use is like if you were filling a glass of water through a straw, it's filling from that straw on up. And you can think of the center of the pelvic floor as the perineum and same thing on the exhale. So if you were pulling the water out of the straw, it would again empty from the bottom. Well, I was just going to say, I wonder if functionally those are very similar, that the idea is that you're in contact with your lower abdomen and your pelvic floor. Like that's really the goal is to get it down in there, I would guess. Absolutely. And it's all about healthy, good movement. A lot of people, if they have really overdeveloped abs, their belly's not moving. Or I know so many women that are self-conscious about their belly and therefore they're always just kind of chronically holding it in, trying to look a little flatter in the belly or something. And that's just terrible for us. It is. And it's not just women. I work with men and, you know, kind of the military idea of pull your stomach in and puff out your chest. Mm. That's very, very present in the male community. So would you say that teaching people how to breathe appropriately and how to get in touch with their pelvic floor through the breath, is that the main tool that you're using 
with people? It is not the main tool, but in my mind, it's the most important. So I tell people that come to my workshops, if you're going to take one thing away, make it that your breath should be better. So what's the difference for you? Like what's the main tool and what's the most important tool? Like how are those two different? You know, the breath is the most important because I feel like it's the foundation of everything and we're doing it all the time. A little more mindfully or change it to be a little bit better. That's a huge shift right there. But I want to build that good breathing on asana. And there's certain poses that you can really, depending on how you're working within the poses, you can really target whether your pelvic floor is tight. There's poses that open your pelvic floor more. If your pelvic floor is loose and you're having incontinence, well, there's poses that also contract the pelvic floor more. And then lastly, one of the things I teach is that helped me so much was when I saw my PT she encouraged me to do an internal pelvic floor massage. She mm-hmm. taught me how to do it, but she's like, you have to do this every day for a while because you're so tight. You can't just depend on coming to me once every couple of weeks and hope it's going to get better because it's not. So it's a multidisciplinary approach as well as posture. One of the things I ask people when they first come to me is what do you do all day? Oh, I sit. Oh, I stand. You know, I have a job where I'm a baker or a hairstylist or I'm, I have a desk job. I'm sitting all the time. Show me how you sit. Show me how you stand. Because chronic uh, rounding of the back is also a big contributor to pelvic floor problems. Or the opposite. People have weak abs and then they have hyperlordosis in the lower back. It could go either way with that. And then the last part that I talk about in the book that I've written is every pelvis has a story. <laughs> and, and, and it's really important to know what your story is. Because what I find is people identify with one thing. They may say, oh, you know, this happened to me and then I had that problem. The thing that they're identifying with that pushed them into a problem is just the straw that broke the camel's back, usually. So it's a problem brewing. They don't really know it. That was the case for me. Every gynecological exam I ever had, the doctor would be like, can you relax? And I'm like, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm relaxed. Like I'm trying, but you have nothing to compare it to. One of those doctors said, you know, you're a little more tight than the average person. You may want to try to take care of that before it becomes a problem. Well, first of all, I just want to bring your book up. I got your book several years ago and it was one of the first books of its kind when I was looking at it. It was. <laughs> now there's so many. Yeah, Which- but it was life-changing for me because wow. no one had ever talked to me about any of this. And here was a whole book on it. And the book is really, really great. The self-inquiry piece, I just found it remarkable. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, Leslie is brave to put this out there because it was kind of a taboo topic that nobody was really talking about. You were kind of a pioneer. So was there any hesitation to dive into this and talk about things like my PT showed me how to do internal self-massage? Maybe a little bit initially, like, you know, when I think about maybe the first year I was teaching, I was using images, right? I only had like three, 2D images. Um, And I thought to myself, God, it'd be so nice if there was like a model of this. Well, apparently there is. I didn't know that, but like I searched on the internet. I'm like, oh my God, I can buy a medical model. And then that changed things a lot because then I had a 3D model. Folks could like, I could pass it around. People could take a deep look at it and I could describe the massage so much better 
than kind of like, well, you know, lay down on your bed and do this. I'm like, okay, here's the pelvis, you know, this way and this way, you're lying down, it's gonna be this way. And I would say I got less and less shy <laughs> as time went on. I'm like, you need to talk about this. This is another body part. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Are your participants, I mean, they show up at your workshop, so they clearly know they're coming to talk about pelvic floor dysfunction, but are they a little shy at first? Sometimes I've sadly had a couple women that I described the massage and they came up to me at the end and I said, well, is there any other way to do this? I said, are you reluctant to touch yourself? And they were like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And I just, that made me so sad, just broke my heart. Cause you know, so much of it is like societal, cultural, familial. Like what are the messages you got growing up that, that really just can really play big into our feelings around our bodies. And I love that, that you don't just look at the hypertonicity and the anatomy, you're looking at the cultural messages, the energetics. I mean, it's like you're, there's a multifactorial thing going on and you're looking at it from all different angles simultaneously. All of these things have effects on us. And this was my journey as like, why do I feel this way about myself? Why as a yoga teacher, was I not in touch enough with this part of my body that I didn't know this was going on until it was a problem? Yeah, that kind of blew my mind. Uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm taking a deep dive into this. I think so many listeners can probably relate. I mean, you literally just sit at your desk on the computer all day because that's what your job requires. And for some people, it almost just feels like they go numb from the belly button on down, but they don't notice. Exactly. It's just like, oh, I guess that's how it feels now. And to hear that you first healed yourself and then started helping others. How long did that take when you put this focus and started really getting into the the methodology that you eventually developed and did some research on, which we'll talk about in a few minutes? Was it like six months? I don't want to discourage folks. I just want to say I had a very severe case of it. Okay. So not everybody had it as bad as me. I had immediate relief the first physical therapy appointment I had, and she did some manipulation. So I had some relief, but for it to be consistently good, about a year. And I want to say I would do better, and then something stressful would happen in my life. It was kind of like I was massaging my pelvic floor, talking to my pelvic floor, saying, are you ever going to let go? What happened is over time, it started to let go, but I think there's this fear, this like physical sense of fear, like what's going to happen. And then once you let go and you're like, oh, the world didn't fall apart. Then even if you get in trouble, like you're on a long plane ride or you have a fight with your spouse and your pelvic floor clenches, you're much, much, much more able to get it to let go. Initially, it might be like, no, 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 I'm not going to let go. But once it lets go and sees like, okay, I'm okay, then it's much easier. It kind of sounds to me like you're retraining the habitual pattern of it and maybe it will let go. But then, as you said, if you get back into fight or flight or freeze, boom, go back to the old way, protect. (laughs) Yeah. And I still do that. Like if I feel stressed out or something, that pattern is so ingrained in me, but I also now recognize it and now I can overcome it. And do you feel it right away now? Do you kind of Like I always think of Stephen Porges' work and this whole dorsal vagal where you just kind of go numb from the waist down and all of a sudden can't feel your legs. Is that the kind of feeling that you might have? 
I don't go the numb way, although I know a lot of people do. No, it's more I become aware that my breath, I'm going into my old breath pattern. Mm. That's more my red flag. But I think everyone's different. I mean, I can really feel my pelvic floor with every breath if I think about it. So I just also wanted to say, and we may get into this, but you know, so many people have been sexually abused in this country. It's so sad. Mm. Like think about what, of course your pelvic floor would clench if you were being sexually assaulted or, you know, even worse, like abuse when you're growing up, things like that, like continued abuse. So it's a huge problem. You know, Leslie, there's some statistic out there, like one in four women has been sexually abused or assaulted at some point in their life. I think it's even way higher than that. I think people don't remember. That number you're quoting is the Department of Justice. Exactly. Those are the ones that are reported. And I can tell you almost every single person I've ever talked to has never reported it. Right. That's uh, my point. I mean, almost all women I talk to have some remembrance of some event. And I think there's plenty that have repressed it or blocked it out. And when they start doing this kind of work, sometimes even memories that have been repressed start to come forward. Yep. That's why I think it's that part of the self-inquiry is important. Think about all of the things that you can think about, good and bad, that you know have happened in this area of our body. Yeah. And why do you think, I mean, I talk to a lot of women in their 50s that are no longer enjoying sex or their libido has gone down or they're just like, I'm done, I'm out. (laughs) Do you think that's because it's become painful? I mean, is there a reason? I guess it could be lack of connection with their partner. I mean, there's probably many reasons. Well, yeah, it can be many reasons. Definitely when we go through menopause, things change, right? We have lack of estrogen and progesterone. We have lack of collagen. So all of your muscles, including the pelvic floor, lose a little bit of their, I'll say, fluffiness or tone, toneness. And dryness can be an issue. But I think having gone through menopause, I just turned 60. If I can just overcome the initial, like, you know, it's a little bit more challenging to get into it but I know that I can get into it. And it's important to get into it for your relationship, but also for your own health. Take away the psychological intimacy issue, all of that, and all of that is good, but most of us know that for a man to get a good erection, it's all about blood flow. It is the absolute same for clitorises. So the clitoris, most people don't even know, I'm sure you do, is like three and a half, four inches long, but it's buried. And the internal massage that I referenced earlier is so important. And in lieu of that, you could have a lot of penetrative sex. And that also really keeps the blood flow and keeps your tissues healthier. There was a pretty big study I read about women that had penetrative sex had much healthier vaginal tissue. Well, it just makes sense to me that it's kind of like a workout. And I know a lot of people with prolapsed organs in the pelvic area, it always makes me wonder if things have just kind of lost their tone and kind of fallen down into the pelvic bowl. And if just like regular workouts at the gym, any other muscle group, if there was a regular interaction, whether by yourself or with a a partner, if all of those muscles and all of that would be a little more toned up, what do you think of that? 
I totally agree. And as you were saying earlier about how, you know, we're disconnected, a lot of us are disconnected with this part of our body. So it's so many things. It's like, get in there and massage it if you don't have a partner. If you have a partner, get in there and have some fun. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is how my husband got on the, you know, he part of the program. I'm like, if you want to have sex with me, we're going to have to massage my pelvic floor. And my PT, to her credit, was like, use it as foreplay, you know? Initially, he was like, really? Okay. But it means we can have sex. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bonus there. You know, it's a little awkward at first, but we get past it. And then it was so affirming the first time he's like, wow, your pelvic floor is so tight. Like, because we think vaginally, you're just going in kind of like a tampon, but when you go to the sides and feel your muscles from the inside, he's like, wow. And I'm like, did you think I was lying? Yeah, right. Maybe a little part of him that was like, she just doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. I was like starting to like wear frumpier and frumpier clothes to bed and, <laughs> and getting dressed and undressed in the closet. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want him to get any ideas. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So I have to go back. You know, you were talking about all the different reasons. Do you think that chronic constipation could also have an impact on this? Absolutely. Yep. There's many reasons for constipation, but tight pelvic floor is absolutely, I'd say in the top three. I just can imagine how, if you're not going to the bathroom once or twice a day with the bowel movement, it could almost be like compacted in the lower abdomen and pelvic floor area. Yes. Well, if you think about, okay, so let me just say something about the anatomy. So two of the three pelvic floor muscles, there's three layers. Two of them run front and back. So means meaning tailbone to pubic bone. So when the pelvic floor is in a shortened position, like think of rounding your back and kind of sitting on your tail rather than your sitting bone, all the muscles around the anal sphincter are getting short and tight. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not that that's a bad position in and of itself. It's if you're doing it eight, 10, 12 hours a day. I'm moving in my chair right now. I'm as I'm saying this. And then like your body goes, okay, I guess these muscles are just supposed to be short. And then that's the posture they take. And then you can't untuck your tailbone anymore. Mm. And would you say it's not just the muscles on the lower part of the pelvic floor, but I've heard some pelvic floor specialists say, think of your pelvic bowl as actually going up onto the sides of your hips and your glutes. And would you say that all of those muscles up and around the, the buttocks, like the the rotators yeah external the hip rotators for sure the piriformis or the glute medius is tight and gristly which it usually is usually Mm -hmm. the third layer of the pelvic floor is as well and then also the psoas muscle runs through the pelvic floor it's all connected as you know i try to look at the whole thing first we start with the pelvic floor hey do you know where it is do you know what it looks like can you feel it can you breathe into it can you feel your breath moving it all different things like that. And then we move out from there. Let's take a look at your gluteus muscles because the gluteus muscles are the counterbalance to the pelvic floor. So they're connected. A lot of them connection points are on the sacrum. And so if your buttocks muscles are short and tight, again, because you've been sitting in a tucked tail position for so long, then you have no forces pulling the sacrum the other way to balance the pelvic floor muscles. So absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. 
One more question before we get into the research and your methodology. How does fascia play into this? I'm not a fascia specialist, so I'm going to keep my answer brief. But my understanding is that muscles are more willing to stretch than fascia. So with fascia, it's more like you have to hold and wait mm. to get more shift. Yeah. And kind of like a yin yoga approach. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, even manipulation. One quick thing about fascia is if you have any scar tissue anywhere in your body, because I'm talking about the pelvic floor, if you have scar tissue at the perineum because you had an episiotomy or you tore, or you had a C-section, or you had fibroids removed, or you had an appendectomy, that scar tissue, if you don't work on it regularly, diligently, your whole body is compensating for that glue ball you know, you think about a C-section, they cut through like seven layers of tissue. And then if they don't do scar mobilization, which again, we don't do that. The doctors aren't, make sure you do that. No, you have to actually know that. And then out of pocket, pay for it yourself is you've got to try to get that, that scar tissue and that fascia unadhered from your uterus. Otherwise your uterus is kind of frozen in space. This had the same experience with a different part of my body. I had an illness last year where I had to have 15% of my tongue cut off. And for the first seven or eight months, it was so hard. And I could feel that it was just a big lump of scar tissue. And it was only about six or seven weeks ago that somehow, and it was, I started chanting again, but it softened and now it's pliable. I was so amazed. It almost seemed like it happened in like a week's time. I guess I didn't realize, number one, that I could use chanting to do that. But number two, I was shocked that that scar tissue softened again. I just thought it was just going to be scar tissue forever. I know. And people think that you really need to break up the adhesions because the scar tissue has very little vascularity. There's hardly any blood flow in it. And as I was saying earlier, how important our blood flow is. The tongue though, oh my God, that's a subject I'd love to talk to you about for another hour sometime. The tongue is the most fascinating organ. It's like the only internal organ that we really have access to. Leslie, will you come back for that? Because (laughs) I had tongue cancer and had to have a portion of my tongue removed. So I would love to have a whole tongue episode if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Yeah, the tongue is fascinating. And there's a huge connection between the tongue and the pelvic floor. I think so. Partially, there is. Yeah. Okay. For another day. I know. (laughs) So where do we want to go? Do you want to tell us about these studies that you have been doing with UCFS that are kind of giving the evidence-based research to back up the methodology that you've been working with? I think it was back in like 2016 or something, 2017. I got a phone call from the head of gynecology and obstetrics at University of California, San Francisco. And I'm like, yes. And they said, well, well, we're thinking about doing a study, you know, for yoga around incontinence. And every time we do, your name comes up. And I'm like, really? I felt like, wow, you know? And they said, would you like to be part of this? I'm like, yes, please. And so they invited me and they invited Judith Lassiter to come and be a consultant on this study to put the study together. And they wanted a study on for women over 50 that were experiencing stress or urge incontinence. So we had to kind of balance the practice with, you know, poses that strengthen and poses that stretch. So our pilot study had a 
70% improvement in six weeks. So that is published, published peer-reviewed study. And then when that study appeared, we got a huge grant from the NIH to do a big study, which just ended. So for the last three years, I've been overseeing many classes, many teachers, observing the classes and coaching the teachers. They didn't want me to teach the classes because they wanted information to be given out. Anyway, it's not published yet, but it will be. But the preliminary numbers are actually showing a 75% improvement in incontinence symptoms. Are you saying 75% when you say 0.7? less incidence of incontinence after doing a six-week program where they were doing two one-and-a-half-hour classes a week plus one-half-hour practice at home. Wow. And so... Is there kind of a protocol that you have? I call this a functional group series where you take X amount of people through twice a week for six weeks and each class kind of has a protocol with it. Is that how you do it? I'm not sure how you're using the word protocol, but we only use 12 poses. So I wanted the teachers to have some creativity and also I didn't want the students to be bored. So I gave them some license to do it differently. Like, okay, we're gonna do some standing poses and use the chair today, or we're gonna do standing poses and use the wall today, things like that. But yes, we had a limited amount of poses to make sure we could have a more targeted knowing of what worked. So you don't have to get totally into it, but did you have like a queen pose for each of the classes that you kind of worked up towards that particular pose? No, actually I was trying to talk UCSF into doing it just for stress or just for urge, because in my mind, people that have urge incontinence are almost always too tight and people with stress incontinence are often too loose. And they were like, well, we just wanted, we wanted to just be incontinence. I'm like, okay. So we kind of had to balance the class with poses that contract the pelvic floor and poses that stretch the pelvic floor. So what I asked my teachers is to give the students like some direct for their home practice, they could do anything they wanted. But the teacher said, hey, you know, you have an urgent constant, so you might want to do the more hip opening poses and the anterior tilt poses and people who were seemed more hypotonic to loose, they would give them more like the lateral standing poses, like really working the legs and external rotation, bridge pose, things like that. It was varied. Mm. I think that's amazing to come up with something that can be replicated but still has that variety and creativity. And like you said, it doesn't get boring. That's a pretty amazing way to develop a research study. Yeah. And also like, it's not the magic of, let's say warrior two is in the study. It's not the magic of warrior two. It's the, what are you doing in warrior two? Like, what are the actions that you're doing? So, you know, you could do a warrior two where your feet are too wide apart and then you're hanging in your pelvic floor and that might not be good for someone who's too loose. So are you working the legs properly? Can you feel the connection of the heel work, like pressing the heels in a particular way that activates the pelvic floor more? I felt like it was more about the intricacies of the actions than the actual magic of the poses. And do most people know if they're hypertonic in the pelvic floor versus hypotonic? Does the doctor tell them that? You know, interestingly, not until very recently, it's totally changing now, but even as much as 10 years ago, gynecologists were not trained to evaluate muscle tone. It was more for them about organ health or diseases or something that's wrong. So it's really the physical therapy world that has taken this 
subject and run with it. They are worth their weight in gold. And most of the good ones in my area like have a six-week wait list because there just aren't enough people for the demand. So one would hope that your gynecologist would tell you that. But like I said, no gynecologist ever told me that except for, can you relax more? If some of them even are registering that this is feels hypotonic or hyper, you know, like maybe that's not even a thing there. I think it's not what their focus is. And again, I know a lot of the medical schools are making the OBGYNs do a six-week residency with a pelvic floor PT. So it's really changing. That way they can say, hey, you know what? You need some help. I'm going to refer you to a pelvic floor PT. Well, and I was reading about some of the other allopathic ways that it's handled. And and you wrote a little bit about this, that they might just tell you to wear pads because urinating and... But you also said something about sling surgery that I hadn't heard of before. What is sling surgery? Okay. So maybe, you know, like if you have a hernia and you have to have surgery for it, they put this mesh, it looks like a little netting. It's a hole in your body basically. And it sometimes won't heal by itself. So you do sometimes have to get surgery for a hernia. So somewhere along the way, some doctor thought, well, Hey, it works for hernias. Let's try it for prolapsed bladders. And unlike drugs that need to be tested for years before they come to market, that's not the case for surgical procedures. And so sometimes we don't know the repercussions of surgical procedures until later. So a lot of women signed up to get this mesh surgery and the technique was not perfected or good. And what happens when you put mesh in the body is your fascia and everything kind of intertwines with it at some point, it kind of just becomes you and you can't take it out. Do you know what I mean? Like, because everything is like, has grown through it, on it, in it. And so a lot of women were having a lot of infection and pain and wanted to take it out and it couldn't be taken out. And so there is a class action suit against the manufacturer of the mesh, which turned out to be, that was one of the problems. Now, I've had students come to my workshops and said, well, I had it and I have no problem. That's great. And I know they fixed a lot of the problems, but in the earlier years of it, it was a huge problem. Wow. Yeah. I've heard of that. Mm. All right. So one more kind of just general question. Would you say that the people with either a hypertonic pelvic floor or hypotonic Do they both need to learn to engage and relax? Correct. Well, I hold up my hands and I say, if my pelvic floor is tight, it's like my hand that can't open. It's stuck in a closed position. If my pelvic floor is loose, my hand is stuck in an open position. Neither one of them are a strong hand. I can't carry a bucket in either one of these. I can't hold sand in either one of these. So what we want in all of our muscles is full range of motion. And so for the people that are too tight, we have to get them to relax. And then once we get them to lengthen their muscles a little bit, and then we want to teach them correct engagement rather than just clenching all the time. And folks that are lacking tone, we have to get them to learn how to contract their muscles better so that they can be stronger when needed, like jumping, running, laughing, coughing, stuff like that. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier about the stress response. I mean, I found that if I would have two or three months of really big stress, I might start to have a little incontinence and then the stress would go away and I wouldn't have it. I don't think most people understand that mental, emotional, spiritual stress has that effect on 
all of our muscles, including our pelvic floor, and that it can be reversed by better autonomic nervous system tone, by decreasing burnout. I mean, I think that's kind of common sense, but most people don't think of it. Yeah. Like stress takes energy and we only have so much energy. And those of us that are getting less young, (laughs) our energy, our energy is dissipating. When you're young, you like have too much energy and you're like, you go, 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 because you need to burn off excess energy. But for a lot of us, as we get older, you're not springing out of bed, you know, going to do to your two hours stronger yoga practice anymore. I mean, you might be, but I know personally, I don't feel that way anymore. I used to get up and have to go work out or do yoga or something. And now it's more like, okay, I have to do this. <laughs> right. So that's gotten me really interested in looking at my yoga practice differently in that I feel like it's an energy management system, really, you know, the asana practice, pranayama practice. And so you're managing your energy. So if you have less of it, you want to conserve it. And if a muscle is constantly chronically tight, that is pulling your energy. It takes energy to do that. I love that asana and pranayama as an energy management system. And your practice might need to change day to day, depending on how much energy you have or how far along in depletion you are. That's a beautiful way to look at it. So is there anything we haven't talked about, Leslie, that you feel like everybody needs to know this thing? One thing. I think, you know, just paying more attention to this part of our bodies. You know, I like to have fun. I mean, it's a serious topic, but I'm also a funny person. And my students like, would you recognize your vulva in a lineup? You know, like when was the last time you looked at it? Like a police lineup? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? I mean, I've had women come back sometimes in my two-day workshops. They're like, wow, I haven't looked at it in a long time. It's really changed. I'm like, right. You need to be aware of that. So pay attention to this part of your body. Look at the skin. If you have uh, white patches on the skin, that might indicate a condition called lichen sclerosis. If you look at your vulva regularly and a freckle all of a sudden shows up, please don't panic. If you have a freckle on your vulva, it's normal. However, you can get cancer on your vulva. So you want to just would see a weird thing on your back. You want to look at the vulva and a lot of us don't. So looking at it, paying attention to it, like, can you feel your breath moving in your pelvic floor? And then if you're brave enough to do the internal massage, or if that seems daunting, just going, I recommend everybody go for one pelvic floor PT, just for an evaluation. Hey, is everything okay? Am I strong? Am I weak? Am I too tight? Am I too loose? What do I need to do? You don't need to go regularly unless you have a lot of issues, but you can resolve a lot of things through yoga and and pranayama. Okay. This may be completely out of bounds. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, and we can cut this part. But what do you think of these yoni eggs? (laughs) Please keep it in. (laughs) I I have to ask me, so I want to have an intelligence answer. So here's my answer. Anything that helps you have more awareness in this part of your body is great. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, if you're like, oh, I want to get a yoni egg because I want to have a strong pelvic floor and you are tight and you don't know you're tight, it can make things worse. Just like kegels, just like mulabanda, it can make things worse. If a device helps you because you are not as in touch with yourself in this part of your body, use it. Mm-hmm. But I don't need that anymore. I don't need to put stuff in my vagina to feel it. 
I can feel it or I can put my fingers in. And that's even better because I'm having two input points. I'm having the feeling in my vagina and I'm having the tactile feeling feedback of my hands, which are the biggest real estate in the brain is our hands. What I hear you saying is if someone was uncomfortable using their own hands and they had a hypotonic pelvic floor, maybe that could be useful. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to tone everything, but are you already too toned? Okay, so one more question. I know I keep saying one more question, but now you're here. I talk about this for 20 hours. Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Some people have talked about how their pelvic floor, when they finally do get in touch with it, almost feels contracted, say, on the right side, but not the left. Is that something also that maybe just one side could be hypertonic and the other hypo? Yeah, it's very common. Again, who knows why? It could be the way the episiotomy scar healed. It could be because you have a habit of crossing one leg over the other all the time. It could be you were involved in a sport where one leg is always the stabilizer and the other is the mover. Very common. I look at these kids on the scooters right now and I watch them as a yoga teacher. I'm like, Okay, that kid was only using his left leg and then doing all the movement with the right leg. And we all do that. We have a favored way to do it. So that can be a contributing factor. It could be you have scar tissue somewhere and then one side of your body started to compensate. And so then the pelvic floor started to tighten because of that. So there's all kinds of reasons. But again, if you have a loose side and a tight side, and you're like, oh, kegels or mulabanda or the jade egg all day long, I'm going to do this. Well, this side's just going to get tighter. Right. So you have to address the tighter side first so that you're starting off like this, right? We want our pelvic floor to lift symmetrically. I hear people talk about that, how the one side of the pelvic floor is tighter, but that leads all the way up into low back pain on oh. one side more than the other. Yep. I'm speaking in generalities, but usually the tighter side of the pelvic floor is the side of the lumbar that hurts. That side of the lumbar tends to be more muscular and that leg is not as strong. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And all this could be, you could figure all this out by getting an evaluation from a pelvic floor PT. They could tell you, oh, your left side. You can do an internal evaluation, which is something I can't do. I can look at people's bodies and take them through a couple of things and pretty much know what's going on. Hmm. But if they didn't have access to you to do that, they could possibly find a pelvic floor specialist, the PT. It could also help them understand those imbalances. And then could they come to you with that information? Like, could you even do an online Zoom class with them if they said, okay, here's the results of what my PT says is going on? Yeah. And again, this is the beauty of yoga is, you know, we have all these asymmetrical poses. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an extreme example, but it's a good one. Like Hanumanasana, the splits, the front leg is doing a forward bending action, which stretches the pelvic floor. The back leg is doing a back bending action, which is contracting the pelvic floor. So you can do lesser versions of that. But for your yoga listeners out there, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Wow, that's interesting to think about. Okay, Leslie. So let's talk about, we have your book. I'm going to pull that up on the screen again, because some of you are watching this on YouTube and you may want to see the beautiful cover of her book called Pelvic Liberation by Leslie Howard. And tell us how people could study with you on this topic, how they could connect with you. I see you have a 20 hour 
pelvic floor training. That's a pre-recorded. So that's self-paced. You have one year to finish it. And even if you don't finish in a year, you can have an option to renew. So that's pre-recorded, available all the time. And then I do teach in-persons. I just got back from Denver, taught my first in-person in three years. It was so fun. So I do do in-person ones as well. You don't have to do a 20-hour training. I sometimes do like one-day workshops. You can see coming up, I've got some pelvic floor workshops coming up. And I also do online and in-person, sometimes hybrid of more specific, like, do you have pelvic pain? We'll do a three series class or do you have incontinence? We'll do a three part series class so that you can kind of tailor it to what you need. And do you work with people privately online? I do. I, so I live in Oakland, California. I see people in my home studio and yes, I definitely see people on Zoom. And over COVID, I've gotten really good at reading bodies <laughs> on screen. <laughs> that, I bet. And I'm sure you can ask questions and use that to inform what might be happening. Yeah, definitely. Great. So your website is www.lesliehowardhowardyoga.com. Lesliehowardyoga.com. And if you forget that, also pelvicfloryoga.com will get you to lesliehoward.com. And is there any chance you could send me over the study that's already been published with UCSF? I can put that every week we give a free gift. Whatever the person talked about, we kind of send out a free gift. So if you wouldn't mind sending that over, I can make that our free gift of the week. We didn't even get to the pelvic pain study. After we had such great results with the incontinence study, um, I got them to do a smaller, we didn't get as funded, but we're hoping for more funding. But we also are in process right now of doing a study for pelvic pain. So that's exciting. This is exactly what we need. Well, thank you, Leslie, for being here today. And I'm already inviting you back for the tongue <laughs> episode. <laughs> and uh, thanks for coming. It was lovely to have you here. So much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And it's all about women helping women. I think it's so important just to get the word out and normalize the conversation. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you to Leslie for sharing so openly and freely and being just lovely in talking about all of these sometimes sensitive issues. And then also, Leslie is so generous. She's going to give us a PDF copy of the study that she has done with UCFS. And we'll put that in the show notes, how you can get a copy of that as the free gift each week. And also she's giving us a discount. She has a 20-hour pelvic floor course. It's asynchronous, meaning you can do it on your own time. And it's usually $500 and she's giving our listeners $100 off. So we'll also put that in our show notes and help you get that coupon code if you'd like to do that. All right. So one of the really cool things that I learned about today is this idea of asana and pranayama as energy management system, meaning we can look at where we are at any given day. If we're feeling depleted, we might do one type of asana and pranayama to nourish us. And if we're feeling pretty energetic and have a lot of energy to spare, we might do a very different practice. And I just thought it was a really cool idea and way to describe it. 
some of the other things that I took away from this episode are connection between constipation and pelvic floor health. I can't tell you how many Americans are constipated and really working out how to become less constipated could be a huge factor in pelvic floor health. And of course, that's like dominoes. Now, maybe incontinence changes, maybe having regular intercourse feels more comfortable. I mean, there's so many things that can happen when you start paying attention to the health of your pelvic floor, separate from constipation, but that could be part of your particular puzzle. So I hope that these topics become more and more accepted. These trailblazers like Leslie and the others that I've mentioned, just really saying that women matter, our health matters, and it's okay to talk about these topics that have sometimes been kind of pushed away into the corner to the point where we women are almost ashamed of our own body and don't want to connect with our own body. I mean, I think that is food for thought and reflection right there. If we kind of have this idea of, ooh, I don't want to know anything about that part of my body. What does that say about us? And maybe there's some deep svadhyaya or self discovery that we need to look at. Where did those beliefs come from? Was it our family? Was it our culture? Did we have something in our past that caused us to feel that way? And really looking at this part of our body, just like any other part, we love our heart. We love our lungs. We love our brain. Why can't we love and explore and feel confident talking about the pelvic floor and the pelvic organs also. I mean, really. So I hope you are inspired by this. As I said, her book was life-changing for me when I read it a few years ago. I still have a copy. It's one of those books that I've really held on to. A lot of experiential exercises in there, beautiful thoughts on anatomy and energetics and the cultural messaging that many of us have received. I think you will really enjoy her book. All right, everyone, have a great week and I will see you next week. Bye. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.